back to the flip side. Galen Clavio here, along with Brian Moritz. Brian, welcome back. Uh, it feels like it's been a lot longer than a week. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, I, because, because, well, probably because for the first time we're actually doing it on the regularly scheduled days, actually at the evenly spaced interval. So you know, it might be the case. It also might be that seven and a half hours of my life went towards watching the OJ documentary this past uh, week. Very nice. Which I mean, it, it. I feel like I lived a couple of lifetimes with that thing. My God. Yeah, that's pretty. I uh, that's one of our topics for today, and and what I have seen is incredibly intense. Yeah, it, um, it gets. I mean, if and if you've only been through like one and a half episodes, it gets mm-hmm. a lot more intense. Like, I mean, yeah. it really, it really, really does. Yeah. So, and uh, happy belated first Father's Day to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, yes, I got a couple of texts from friends of mine, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I guess I am in that club now. Uh, yes, just, you are. It's not something you think about uh, <laughs> until you're in it, and then you're like, eh, eh. Right. yeah, so, yeah. We had a good Father's Day. We didn't do much, but that was fine. You know, we just I we can't. just tried to tried to take it easy. I did my mostly was like making class notes and, and writing a book chapter and things like that. So, right. Um, as you, as you do to celebrate modern fatherhood. Yeah, that's right. You know, that and, and watching the USGA mess up uh, the U S open. Like that was, that was pretty much the main things that I dealt with on my father's day. Excellent. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, what is your, uh, beverage of choice tonight? So we're we're going with a different Upland uh, than normal. This is the Helios Pale Ale. I don't think this one's okay. been on the show before, but it's a, no. a good and mild pale ale, and uh, and it was on sale. So you know, perfect. Why not? Right. I I even have better than sale beer. I have present beer um, oh. because my uh, the my uh, my wife's side of the family. I just get beer from them on gift giving occasions, which is kind of awesome. Um, so I got I, I got a couple of thirty two uh, of like the fancy thirty two ounce bottles. I got a six pack, a make your own six pack, and I pulled from the six pack tonight. Tonight is the Long Trail L from the uh, Long Trail Brewing Company out of Vermont. <laughs> uh, it's an amber ale, nice, solid, good flavor. Um, I'm growing to become a big fan of the amber ales and and like the hoppy and the hoppy and like the hoppy lagers, like that kind of m- almost like mixed beer where it's a little less hoppy, a little less kick you in the butt as an ipa than, than the ipas are but still kind of more fully flavored than like your traditional labat blue budweiser type lagers yeah i think so that to me is is becoming a holy grail of sorts it's like you know finding finding that beer that is it's it's more potent than a lager but isn't overly hoppy but also isn't overly sweet like I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always been a big fan of like Rogue Dead Guy, but but mm-hmm. I would argue that Rogue Dead Guy, which is a Martzen, is actually a little too much on the sweet side for for okay. my contemporary yeah. tastes. You know, th- those are the sorts of things that, frankly, I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm trying to think. You know, Three Floyds makes some a couple of beers that come close mm-hmm. on that scale. There's a couple of other breweries, but uh, but overall, yeah, that's. We we really need to create our own category in that area. Yeah, yeah. So so we've got some good topics today. We have some good uh, good uh, listener topics from uh, from the Twitter. Yes. Um, and we have a couple topics that we've been coming up with today. We may go a little short today, um, but um, as you have a book chapter to write, but uh, we kind of got some kind of a hodgepodge of some sports related topics. I think uh, one of yours is not in name a sports topic but we can certainly make it one very easily based on events from this weekend um <laughs> so uh where do you want to start let's um well let's tell you what let's let's start with uh let's start with the reader questions that we wanted to tackle let's all right so there were a couple yep. of rochester questions that you wanted to, yes. to handle yes so um as always if you uh tweet us or tweet out a question at hashtag flipside pod or uh, mention us on mention it to us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, guaranteed to spend at least one minute on there. And uh, listener Rob Rexing at Rob Rexing, a friend of yours, uh, tweeted yes. out uh, tweeted out four questions uh, at me today. Two of them are very Rochester based, so I'm gonna. If you don't mind, I'll take those unless you want to come in. Okay, come out. So uh, Rob asked first, uh, "What is your recommendation for beer selection uh, in the Rochester area? Beers of the world or Wegman's Pick Six Isle?" So just as background, Wegmans is our grocery store. It is the Mecca grocery store. And like many grocery stores now, they have the Pick, the pick Six uh, variety pack. Um, Beers of the World is a local 
uh, craft beer store. Uh, very incredibly wide-ranging selection, uh, local beers and international beers, just a, a, a wide, wide variety on it. Wegmans has actually upped its game on the beer uh, on the pick six aisle, and it's interesting. I, I was hearing this from a buddy of mine. They used to be nine ninety nine to to pick six, okay. and they they uh, recently in the past few months the price increased to ten ninety nine for pick six. And what my buddy heard savage from, capitalism. Well, I, I thought I, I a bunch of savages in this town, but I thought about it. But I heard about a buddy of mine. Told, uh, I was talking to somebody at White, uh, that it works there, and what he says you know, apocryphal or not, is that by upping the price, they're able to increase the the level and quality of the beer that goes into the, the pick six. So uh-huh. basically, instead of like more dregs, you're able to get kind of a better quality of it. So I can see that. But the, what Beers of the World has, all aside from wide-ranging selections, and this is actually, I've never seen this at a beer store before, and I love it. Every beer they sell, you can buy either as the four or six-pack that it comes in or as a single serve. Hmm. And I like that because there are times when I think we've talked about, like, I want to try a beer. Like, if yes. they have a sour beer, I don't want to buy a six-pack or a four-pack on the off chance that I don't like it. Um, and there are some times, like, that I go into a store and I don't necessarily want to buy a six-pack. Like, I want maybe two beers for the night or, like, right, a beer. Right, I'm going right, to have right. a beer at night and then I have a beer for uh, uh, one in the hole, as, as they say. But I, I, I just saw I like that. And I like that it's every single one. Like, the Wegmans Variety Pack. And a lot of the grocery store variety packs, it's a limited selection. You can't just go through and everything they have on the shelves and make your own. Like, it's a very kind of set selection. And this is any beer in the store you can pick. Uh, you can buy a single serve or, you know, put it toward a six-pack. So I would go Beers of the World on that one. Yeah, that's an interesting philosophical question. I, To some degree, I feel like when beer is put into containers, it's meant to be sold in groups of that same beer. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I know I say that as somebody who last week bought a sampler pack of six different beers and brought it mm-hmm. home, but, but it almost feels wrong. Like you feel like you're, you're bastardizing the, the brewer's original intent, uh, by, by t- taking, by taking their beer. And it'd be like if you went and had sushi and instead of having a roll of sushi where you've got like eight different slices off the roll, they took mm-hmm. like one slice off of one roll and one slice off a different roll and put it all on a platter together. See, I'm going to have to have to fundamentally disagree with you on this. I mean, I think that, that, you know, to compare a six pack of beer to basically the medley on, abbey road on side two of abbey road I, I i think that's a very different thing like you can separate out one bottle of beer versus you know um uh what's one of those songs uh golden slumbers on, on that you know well, and, and i don't feel i don't feel like there. i don't i feel like, and i personally i don't feel like that's analogous personally i just i love the pick your own six pack i think that has done a lot to Frankly, I think that's one of the best things to happen to the craft beer market in a long time because it opens doors to people who, you know, may not want to buy a full six pack of something, but will give six of diff- different ones a try. It would be an interesting uh, retail study to see how many, like, do you buy this beer in a six pack in a in a sampler pack, and then later are you buying that in a full six pack? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'll have to think about this. I. I have no problem like having you know six different beers on tap at a place okay. when I go out at night. But it and and again I have, I have no like I guess I haven't had any problems with going and getting beer in these individual samplers. But uh, it just it's like I feel like when beers in bottles or cans, as long as they're not forties or or you know some right. other non normal denomination. You're almost breaking the will of what the brewer was intending, which is like you're going to drink what is in effect what 72 ounces worth of this beer, maybe not in one sitting. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm being. I, maybe maybe I, maybe I'm not going anywhere with this. But I don't it, know. I, I I don't see brewers the brewer packaging as an as a six or a four pack as any sort of original intent. Like I, I feel but that's like that's how they always are. I don't think it's accidental. That's just institutionalism. That's not like but, you know but, will, but, of the, but craft, will of the father. But, but craft brewers who don't have to package in sixes or fours decide to package in sixes or fours. Like there's something institutional about this that isn't just the yeah. man. 
Well, no, that's no. I, and I mean, that's straight institutional theory. If we want to get into organizational sociology, which makes for a great podcast. If that's the case, then you are going against the will of brewers who have bought into this institutional theory that, hey, if you're going to buy beer, buy it in a four pack or a six pack. But that, but then I just and, – and you would appreciate this. I feel like I'm thumbing my nose at the hegemony of big beer and, and of the beer and of the beer uh, – of the, the beer it's the crap brewers. Well. It's the little guys that are doing this. But they're still following the, 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 the hegemonic ideals of the, of, the, of the main – of the big guys. Are you, so, so. You're, so you're engaging in like a cultural beer imperialism then. You're, 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 you know yes. better than the people – you know better than the culture itself what's good for it. I'll take I'll, – I'll, I'll Take that. I'll wear that hat. Absolutely. So, um, all right. Rob's next question, and this is another Rochester area uh, question. Uh, Best barbecue in Rochester area, dinosaur or sticky lips? I've been to both. Curious to hear a local resident opinion. That's a no-brainer. That's dinosaur barbecue any day of the week and twice Mm -hmm. on Sundays. We Uh, don't have that here. We have it. The closest one is in Chicago, which is not close. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I forgot they were out in Chicago because they started in Syracuse for the right. longest time. That was their only, and it was a big deal when they expanded out to Rochester. I don't know, maybe fifteen, maybe ten, fifteen years ago. And now, and then they went to Harlem, and now, now they are franchised. Now, I will say this: um, having just read a Michael a chapter in a Michael Pollan book about barbecue, and having you know spent some time down in North Carolina, Dinosaur Barbecue is very good to excellent barbecue. For upstate New York, right? I'm not. I'm not going to be putting it on par with Arthur Bryant's or any of the or like, uh, shoot, the brisket place in Austin. Um, so, uh, uh, the the uh, Salt Lick. Yeah, no, it's the other one. The uh, uh, oh, oh Franklin's. 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 Thank you. Yeah, Franklin's or any of the pitmasters in North Carolina. Like, I'm not going to put that, but for you know. Where I live and where we live, that's that that's very good barbecue. And Sticky Lips just uh, to me can't hold a candle to it. Yeah. So, do you have a best barbecue place in uh, in Bloomington that you can? Uh... You know, where we've actually for a while we didn't have a very good one, we, and we didn't have very many. Like a couple of trucks uh, were selling barbecue, and it just didn't taste very good. Now there's a couple of contenders. So our butcher in in town started a smokehouse in the in the the building next to this actually in the, in the strip mall next to where their current butcher place is. And, uh, and it's really good. Uh, they, they, they serve a little bit of everything. They, um, they do ribs very well. They do pork very well. There's also a a thing called shortstop barbecue, which is, uh, pretty good. They're, they're located at a gas station. They set up outside five days a week. Um, much like, much like you're saying, I mean, I've been, you know, I lived in Memphis, I lived in North Carolina, mm-hmm. far more of a Memphis guy than a North Carolina guy. All right. Um, but, um, yeah, the, there, there is, there, there's something missing with everything that you get up here. Uh, the best barbecue in Bloomington is the stuff that I make, actually. Okay. Uh, well, I, nice. I think that's, and I it just, when I do brisket, I do it right. When I do pork shoulder, I'm able to do it right. It's, it's, it's not that hard to do. Um, right. And I'd, I, you know, and it's, so it's like, I could go to one of those restaurants and they're fine, but I get more for less money by doing right. it myself. Yeah, I, I have a lot of friends who are who are excellent, excellent cooks, and they tend to say the same thing about going out. Like they're not going to go to a steakhouse because they can cook a steak as well or better than most steakhouses at a fraction of the cost. So um, yes, yeah, and in fact, so, yeah, steak yeah. is probably. You can do so much with steak. I think the problem that people have cooking steak is that they're afraid. Uh, my, okay. This is actually a similar problem that people have with cooking chicken, is that on the grill they don't they don't know what they're doing and they're afraid they're going to mess it up. And by being okay. afraid of messing it up, they end up messing it up. Okay. Um, you know, it's like paralysis through paralysis, or no, something <laughs> I, I, that, that went nowhere. But you know, it's like uh, you know the, the like my my some of the re, I, I do a lot of stuff with steak. One of the recent ones I've been doing is just doing a marinade in, in salt. I don't do anything else. I just I just okay. spread kosher yeah. salt over both sides, let it leach out some moisture, and then you can actually do the indirect cooking method on the grill. You know, the funny thing about grilling, everybody's like, you know, steak needs to be cooked on the grill. You go to most like steak no. restaurants, like Roots Chris, it's like it's it's done in an oven. Right, uh, because you, know, you can't get your you can't get your oven that hot. You can't get the grill. It's hard to get the grill as hot to get that that good sear on it. Yeah, right, right. And so that's 
Uh, so a lot of people, I think, they can't get what they feel like is like you know perfection from the restaurant, and so they're like, I can't do this. And you can do it. It just takes some know-how and some patience and, and some trial and error. Yeah. So um, barbecue is much the same way, actually. Yeah, it is. It, it is. And, and, and the book I'm reading it's it's called Cooked by Michael Pollan. He's the guy who did Omnivore, Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, this book's really good. It's a lot less preachy than a lot of his other books, which I kind of like. Um, and it's so it's basically the history. Uh, he looks at four different areas of cooking. So he does barbecue. Uh, I'm in the chapter on bra- on cooking with liquid right now. So braising, stews, mm-hmm. pot cooking, that kind of thing. And then he has one on bread making and one on um, working with uh, fermenting. And so it's like he works with master chefs in each category, kind of learns how to do it, learns the history of it. And like the history, you know, I I was inspired to get it from our discussion a few weeks ago when we were kind of talking about food culture Mm -hmm. and, you know, and just that idea of, you know, you know, the history of cooking and how cooking developed and why that was so important. So kind of our evolution is really kind of uh, it's kind of fascinating. And then and then to read about like the history of like the first people to barbecue, the first people to cook in a pot and the differences and how that came about and, you know, the science involved. So really, uh, it, 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 he, he does tend to get, as he does a little bit, very, you know, preachy on a good subject, but still preachy about, you know, locally sourcing food and, um, and, and um, kind of problems, you know, um, problems with big agriculture and big processed food and right. your mileage may vary on, on how you agree with that. But, but in general, it's a really interesting book. So I'll make sure that that's in notes. Yeah, so, all right. Put that, put that in our Amazon Emporium. I will. I will. I, and, uh, and, uh, and Amazon Emporium. Is that even a thing? It is. Uh, we should create one for the show. Uh, like you, you, you create a, a link to Amazon and if people click through the link and buy anything, then, then we get a cut of the proceeds. So oh, talk about, talk about your capitalism. I'm loving yes. it. So, all right. So next question from Rob, uh, we can probably knock this one off quick, which is the least important part of sports sideline slash post-game interviews or the press conference. Uh, now the way he has sideline post-game interviews combined, I'm going to assume that's either the halftime or the on field. Let's go down to, yes. to, to, uh, to a modern shot with Michael Jordan type, type deal. <laughs> Amad Rashad, Jesus. <laughs> no, the OJ documentary is the next topic. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. And, uh, and versus the actual, press conference uh, i'm gonna let you tackle this one first since i've been doing a lot of the talking tonight i think it's unquestionably and look we've we've established in this podcast that i am no fan of the post-game press conference but if we're right. if we're if this is a beauty contest between these two <laughs> it is unquestionably the sideline slash post-game reporting that is the least important of the two because yeah. it is it's 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 there's no actual reporting going on it's almost entirely for show it is it's like we are play acting for the audience uh and and it's not just the stuff where the reporters on air it's like you know last night nba finals game 7 early on in the game you know they do a live in the you know or or taped you know from the from the team huddle thing where right. steve kerr is like giving instructions to his team and it's the blandest like least informative shit that right. you're you're gonna find, and the and that's by design. And you know, it's sure. funny is like they tell the coach uh, for the team, "Hey, we're gonna be doing this at this point," and that's their cue to basically not say anything of note. Which to me strikes me as hilarious theater because here you right. have a situation where this is an actual timeout that a professional basketball team is supposed to be using to strategize and instead right. they're wasting 30 seconds or more of it so that they can play for the cameras right uh, and it's and in a in the most the last final game of the season the deciding game of their season yes they're they're forfeiting a timeout for theater that is yeah. kind of funny and even yeah. even even if you talk about the sideline reporting itself, where you've actually got the person on, on uh, you know on the microphone, I mean it's it, very rarely is it being used for anything insightful or analytical. It's normally confirmatory. It's normally something that, frankly, the play-by-play person could have talked about because the producer could have said that through through the headset. Instead, right. that you know they hire somebody because there's this feeling that we need a third perspective. It's a way right. for them to bring a woman or a former athlete into the broadcast. Right. And, and that, 
that has a lot of of uh, I guess visual capital for the the producer and therefore the audience, but it doesn't have a lot of reporting capital. Right. There's no, there's nothing valuable that tends to come from the, from sideline reporters. And yes, we will. We have discussed press conferences on this and other podcasts and other forums many times. Um, but at least there, you have a fighting shot of of there. there oh, uh, let's say this: there there can be real. There, there can be actual reporting done in a press conference. It's not an ideal setting for it, but you can have journalistic questions of merit, you know. And, and on, on a sideline interview, it's obviously it's often very quick hit. It's no more than thirty seconds. So whether the, it's an interview or it's like a, a tell us what's going on on the sideline, it's going to be such a quick hit. Usually, yeah, I think a lot of them tend to be. Um, uh, uh, injury updates. So uh, I, I think about this like in football radio broadcast, like like who, who's walking, you know, who's being examined by the trainer, who's leaving under his own power, something like that. And yeah, that's something that that a producer could file to the play-by-play or color guy through through an earpiece or something like that. Um, so I'm going to go as far as worthlessness. I'm going to go sideline post immediate post game, and it's even worse when they're piped through the the house PA, so they're heard in house. Like they, I think they did that at the Super Bowl. I know they do that at Super Bowl, but I think like big events they do that. Other places where like they go down to Jim Nance who's interviewing Peyton Manning, and all of a sudden you hear the echo because it's being broadcast throughout, and that just strikes it as um, uh, even more just performance based and more more um, more awkward too because it's definitely something set for TV, but now they're doing it in for the for the audience that's there. It's just it's always weird. It's never good. It's never memorable. Yeah. I mean, I should say it's never memorable because you have one Sager, like let's say Sager and Popovich go on it, but that only works because they both like know they're 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 doing a bit, basically, right. and they know they're doing a bit. And that's, I guess, maybe the most disappointing thing because I, this is where the cozy relationship between sports leagues and the broadcast partners really hurts what could be a useful journalistic service like the idea mm-hmm. that you would have an active reporter on scene and yeah. then you you'd have other commentators above like the idea that there's a there, there's a coordination that takes place there between uh, those two groups of people is it's a good thing it's something that we should be striving for right. but we don't because we want theater instead we want we want it to have the appearance of this you know interesting in you know repartee between reporter and coach or reporter and athlete or just the coach himself and and never actually once once you're through the looking glass on that it is mm-hmm. you realize how foolish it actually is yeah i mean it, it's funny when when you say that I and mean, then we can move on to oj but like you know when when we used to cover you know when you cover a lot of high school sports you end up doing that on the sideline like high school football i know a lot of reporters who i'm still friends with still cover games on the sideline like walking up and down and like what a fascinating way to cover a pro sporting event to be on this rather than being up top being like like in the spot that the TV sideline reporter is but to have that kind of you know a more serious journalist rather than you know the partnership or the the um wow how'd you hit that shot how, you you must you must be so proud of your moment or something like that yeah it's um it's interesting so rob has one more question for us rob thank you again for all of these these are great um and he uses the talk about but we'll forgive him uh talk about the oj documentaries you have seen all now we're talking about made in america the 30 for 30 espn right. series you have seen all of them i have only seen one and a half i live with the shame um, they are at the top of my queue. I'm planning to watch them in the next week. Um, finding time to watch them around a, fi- a couple five-year-olds is tricky. So, um, so I, 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 I'm fighting with that. Um, so, um, you know, as someone who like me lived through and was like in uh, high school, college when the OJ story. Were you in high school when the OJ's? Yeah, stuff was happening. Okay, uh, it all it all went down like the the summer after my freshman year, basically. Okay, yeah, same here. Um, my freshman year of college, I vividly remember it was after our 11.30 intro to mass media class, and I went to Jared Paveni, longtime listener of the show, uh, longtime contributor at least to the show. I don't know if he actually listens, but I went to his dorm room to watch The Verdict. Um, and so looking at wa- watching, this, watching this documentary, as someone who lived through it, um, what, what, was your, what was your takeaway from it? 
couple things, and I, again, I don't want to spoil it since you have only watched. Well, I do uh, know how it ends. Um, well, you do, but but it's interesting because I I know how it ends too, or I knew how it ended, but I, there was there were levels of detail that I didn't, I don't recall seeing. I don't think anybody really knew about that that really shed some light on things in a way that, frankly, wouldn't have occurred to me at the time. You know, and, oh, and I think. Oh. The local angle. I mean, the O.J. Simpson case was a truly national story. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. it was the most, it, you know, other than like tragedies, um, like the Oklahoma City bombing was a national story because it was a tragedy. Um, right. The O.J. Simpson case was a tragedy in as much as it was, it, it just was so halting to people based upon their their expectations and what they thought they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that made it into this national story. Um, but it wasn't the same sort of tragedy as like what we would consider to be a, a, a typical tragedy. It was more of a tragedy of, of people's inability to comprehend what was going on, which is a different right. sort of thing entirely. And, but, but, but anyway, it was, a, it was a national story, but it had so many local undertones. And I think mm-hmm. that the documentary makers really did a great job of clarifying those, identifying the threads, tying them together uh, as the documentary goes along, bringing in a lot of, of, a lot of things, a lot of um, uh, information about the trial, pictures from the crime scene, stuff like that, that, that mm-hmm. even, though the, the, even though the case got talked about so much, it got talked about so much at the time that a lot of that stuff ended up slipping under the surface and all you got was like the headlines. Um, right. And so that was the big thing I took away from it. I mean, the character study of OJ is really interesting. Um, the the way that the you know that 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 he was portrayed certainly made some points and really highlighted to me. I think the other thing I'll take away from this is how much the world has changed in the twenty one years, twenty two years since all of this went down. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's like the way that. The way that I, I so I've been having uh, the class that I'm teaching right now watch this documentary, and so they all okay. had to watch it, and they brought up some very good points about well, why wasn't why didn't people make a big deal about you know this or that, and you mm-hmm. know one of the things was about domestic violence, and I'm like, well, you know, in in, in the early 1990s, yeah, domestic violence wasn't as big of a deal i mean it really it was it was it, it was still at that at that it was like at the forefront of where we are now of it but there was still a lot of the, the that old school mentality of behind what happens behind closed doors happens behind closed right. doors right and and uh and so stuff like that i found myself thinking man the world has changed a lot in mm-hmm. in, in a relative well what seems like a relatively short period of time i guess 20 years really isn't that short of a period of time at all but but that's right. certainly the thing i've grabbed a hold of the most as i've watched this and 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 it is vivid i mean it's it's frankly i mean it it uh, particularly episodes 3 and 4 mm-hmm. shook loose some memories and some feelings that i i didn't remember having and and brought me back to that era, like brought me back to that time, like in in kind of a spooky manner. And, really, um, like because I mean, you know, uh, I just I remember the case very well, but I remember the the political and cultural atmosphere that the case existed in. Right, and I think that's what I was brought back to more than anything else. You know, and I I, okay. I, I was talking with uh, Matt Zimmerman about this last week because he you know we were talking about this this documentary. And, you know, the thing that struck me the most as I thought back to it was how screwed up the 90s really were from a from like an occurrence perspective, like all of the things Mm -hmm. that happened in the 1990s from, you know, from the beginning of like the from the beginning of the Persian Gulf War, the first one, you know, and, you know, every everything from from the OJ murders to to Waco, to Ruby Ridge, to the Menendez brothers, to oh God, yeah. Oklahoma City, to TWA 800, to, mm-hmm. you know, the first World Trade Center bombing, the, the bombings of the embassies in Africa, the, the, the impeachment of Clinton, I mean, the Rodney King, I mean, all of these things in a relatively short period of time, it, it was, it was, it, and, and everything really, I think, uh, like it had not been before, was being broadcast to so many people 
like mm-hmm. you know you had cable news and you had 24 hour stations devoted to this stuff and it was just like it was such a it was like the we're used to all of this now like the right. you know the Orlando shootings happened last week or you know almost 2 weeks ago and and it and, and that was like a um it's like okay, everybody just knew. Okay, we'll turn on CNN. We'll see exactly what's going on. We'll go on Twitter. Right. We'll see what's going on. Right. It was a new thing yeah. to, to turn on CNN really and be watching this stuff back then. And the idea that 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 stuff was going on, and you know, I'm sitting there in the middle of Indiana, and it's like okay, nothing going on here. The, the right. idea of that dichotomy uh, of society in the U.S. really really struck me as I was watching this this documentary. Interesting. Yeah, like I said, so I watched the first part, which is kind of OJ's athletic career and perspective and the beginning of his celebrity. And they go into great, interesting detail on the famous Hertz commercial that he was in where he's running through the airport. And it's been talked about to death. But of course, it's always interesting to note how deliberate it was that OJ is the only black person in that entire commercial. And it's all white people in various of various ages and powers and whatever cheering him on. Um, you know, I was <laughs> as a Buffalo native and sports fan, a little bummed that when they cut to Buffalo and it's all the desolate winter shots and the long shots of the lake frozen and the and the burnt out factories and all that. And I get it; like they do a really, they did a really nice job of kind of placing that that in context. And it was funny while I was watching that 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 episode, I called up his Pro Football Reference page, and for being a great player like he had what maybe two very he had the one great season where he did 2000 yards he had another season where he was maybe 1700 yards but other yeah. than that it's it, it was you know very much a, a, a college football star and you know a very good NFL career but i don't think you know not not something i would look at now as being super pantheon level football but i think i think one of the things that that the the what i've seen of the documentary does so far is it sets up who OJ was before the case started because you have to understand it, – it, it's funny because when I talk to students about the OJ case and I bring up the OJ case in my classes, obviously they weren't born when right. this, this case happened. So they only know <coughs> – excuse me. They only know OJ Simpson through the prism of, you know, of who he is now. And I, 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 it's one of those things where – you. You know, you really had to be alive and of a certain age to know that this wasn't just a celebrity being charged with murder. This was the, the shocking thing was not just that it was a famous former football player or a famous movie star. It was like the beloved, likable guy. Like, I don't know. I was thinking about this when we brought this up. I don't know if there's an analogous person right now who if you who, who if was charged with a, with a similar crime would elicit just the shock that it, that initial shock of OJ being charged with with this kind of murder and i think part of that is due to this OJ case i mean once you have someone who had OJ stature in, in early 1994 being charged with this now all of a sudden i can't think now that there's there's that easy analogy where if somebody who's extraordinarily extraordinarily likable gets charged with something like this now i i don't know if there's an analogy i think I think the closest analogy I thought about because I asked I asked my class this question if they could have thought of anybody and somebody said Peyton Manning I was like he's not universal enough like no, compared to what no. it was the closest right. I can come up with was pre PED accusation Lance Armstrong like if Lance oh, Armstrong, sure, yes. if Lance Armstrong yeah. had been accused of murder in two thousand and nine yeah. before before he was proven to be a, a cheat and a fraud right. then I think it would have been a similar sort of reaction. Um, probably even more so, but, okay. but yeah, it was, I mean, it's, I, you know, it's, it, it, we're in a different era where mm-hmm. the, the, the type of celebrity that you can build up is it, there's always going to be a little ounce of cynicism in it now. And I think it's largely because of the OJ thing. I mean, I think Absolutely. that, I think that that, that has had an effort. I will say this in defense of OJ's football career. I mean, football players just didn't last that long back then. That's true. Yes, you know, I mean, he right. he he led the NFL in rushing uh, four out of five years okay. uh, from uh, from seventy two to seventy six. That's it. right. Um, you know, uh, and finished with eleven thousand yards. Eleven thousand yeah. yards. Yeah, I, I I should say I should clarify because I, I I didn't make my point well. It's not that I think he had a terrible career or was overrated, but the level of fame that and, and a lot of this came from his movies and his acting and his commercials that he was doing alongside of it. He was very progressive in that era in that area too, where his reputation 
really was so big, you look back at his football career and go, that was good, but that, but it was not, it, it doesn't match the level of run, fame and belovedness that he had just on straight numbers alone. And obviously that's where numbers don't tell a whole story because you had his cultural impact. You had his movie acting. Um, I was very happy to see in, in the first part, the uh, naked gun scene where he gets flipped that was in the wheelchair and gets flipped onto the field. Um, but no, I'm interested. I saw the first half of the second episode and I'm very like, I've read all about it. So I know how, and I'm just in awe of the storytelling and of the, the, the acts, the interviews that he's conduct that, that, uh, Ezra Edelman conducted in, in doing this. And it's just such a towering, this is such a great piece of work. And there's so many little stories, like each part could be a 30 for 30 on its own. Like each of the five could be its own 30 for 30 with nothing else released. And it would have been phenomenal, a phenomenal movie. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a really, it's a really remarkable achievement. And I think they, they should be proud of what they did Mm -hmm. uh, with it. I mean, it really, it really is a special, special piece of work. So, all right. So we have, uh, why don't we tackle, uh, Let's tackle one know. of the non-exciting ones. Or the non-exciting one of, ones. Well, not not non-exciting. I'm kidding, folks. But uh, yeah. I, I did want to. I did want to ask. Uh, let's just talk about the one we were going to talk about. We'll save the other two topics that are a little more evergreen Perfect. for next time. But uh, yes. so, as we all know, Cleveland won the NBA title. The Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA title, which you know we can finally put the whole God hates Cleveland thing to rest. Finally, right, uh, right. You know, and and. It does. It does bring up this question of you know th- this concept of city curses or team curses mm-hmm. when it comes to success in in competitions. You know, right. I mean, you know, it's interesting because Cleveland got all the publicity, but they were not the team that had the longest drought. You know, I mean, San Diego I think has a longer drought. Buffalo's mm-hmm. got a longer drought. Um, you know, they're, they're Minnesota, actually I think Minnesota, Minneapolis has the current longest drought. Of, of cities that have had professional teams at, at this level. Um, you know, it's, it's really, no, no, because no, the twins won. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. My mistake. Um, yeah. no. So, so take that out of the equation. So I okay. think maybe we do go back to the Padre or to the, to Padre, San Diego yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is interesting. The attention that gets paid, it almost, it almost feels like it just gets paid to certain, certain cities and and I feel like you know it's funny that Cleveland got as much attention as it did because it you know I I think Buffalo's got a bigger complaint and it's harder for Buffalo to win a title because Buffalo has one pro team and Cleveland has two pro teams homeboy oh I don't really count the Sabres as a pro team Direct lawyer hate email at Dr. I, 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 mean, I, would, I mean, let them let them finish out of the basement of their division at some point, and then we can have a conversation. But uh, no, in all seriousness, still three versus two. Right. Um, it, it's, it, you know, Cleveland just got so much attention for this. And, mm-hmm. and you do have to wonder if LeBron James had never played in Cleveland, would Cleveland have ever gotten nearly that much attention? So is it really, is it really a Cleveland curse or was it, was it inexorably tied to the LeBron James thing? I mean, I think that it, it, it is the curse because you had the you know, it, it involved the Browns. So you had the drive, you had the drive, and you had the fumble and back to back years and kind of iconic football losses. Well, and that's really um, iconic, so I think, though, I mean, because I mean, I, yeah, I, here's the I thing. Think so. If those had, here's the thing. I, I was a Broncos fan growing up, um, okay, and so I remember both of those games vividly. Um, the, dude, the Rust Belt just hates you tonight. You're, well, you're insulting the Sabers. You were a Broncos fan. I mean, hey, it, it, it's it is what it is, you know. But but the thing with the, the both of those losses happened in the AFC title game, right? And and then the Broncos turned around and got annihilated by better opponents in the Super Bowl both years. You know, I mean, it's right. it to me, it's uh, I don't know. I I feel like there's. Um, it's almost like too much credit was given to those games to some degree uh, okay. as far as Cleveland was concerned. I mean, I will agree the Jose Mesa thing was awful for yes. them. Uh, and, and I would argue, I would argue if, if there was a, a team that, that deserved 
a championship maybe deserve is the wrong word, but there was a team that deserved pity for not winning a championship. It was that mm-hmm. Indians team far more than the Browns. Yeah, um, that was a good team. That was but, a really good team. But you know, but but the Cavs, the two times that they had been to the finals before this with LeBron James, they they weren't that close. I mean, they lost, they got swept in the first one, and they lost in six games in the second one. Right. And and you know, we we've seen much bigger. Um, I guess much, much more difficult to deal with losses from other franchises that are a little more star crossed, uh, not quite get the same sort of attention that Cleveland got. I just, I always, I just found it weird that Cleveland just constantly got as much attention as it did for this when it felt like a bunch of other places and franchises had it a lot worse than they did. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think Cleveland, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the Cleveland had such a bad run civically. I mean, you had the the, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire in the sixties. You had, I know, but still, a lot of bad stuff happened. I mean, I mean, that's true. You want to compare it to Detroit? Three, three Mile Island happened in seventy eight. Like we're not we're not giving that area any like real like benefit of the doubt, are we? Uh, no, no. Um, but but um, actually, now that I think about it, I'm not even sure where Three Mile Island is. Uh, in Pennsylvania, it's in Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh. Um, Really? So, I thought yeah. it was on the I thought it was on the other side of the state. Mm. It might be. I thought I thought it was Pittsburgh. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know ge- where it was, so uh a couple of geography. It's actually it's actually close to neither. It's uh Okay. It is in the middle. It's like it's like close to Harrisburg. Oh really? Oh yeah. I don't drive far from it then. Neat. Um <laughs> there's also a town in Pennsylvania that's underground that's been on fire for like thirty years. I know that. I, I it's one of my favorite it's actually I think it's closer to fifty or sixty years now. Yeah. Uh the yeah. Centra- Centralia, Centralia. Pennsylvania. We we we're obsessed with going to visit that at some point and getting as close as you can to it as possible. It's just such a cool, cool story. Make sure um, you tell so me anyway. before you go so I can know when to plot plot to find a new host co host for yeah. the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Um, but the, the, the idea of the, the, the star-crossed franchise, I mean, it is, you know, let's face it, the Bo- you know, the Boston Red Sox made this their, their stock in trade for about, you know, probably a good 80 years. Well, I mean, they really kind of really used it. And, and by the Red Sox, the Red Sox used it, but like Dan Shaughnessy and like the Boston media, like it was a real thing probably from 86 until 2004. Um, as the thing, but it is funny how it's like always like once Boston, it kind of came off of Boston, then it really moved to like, you know, the predictable city. So you got Cleveland, you got Buffalo, you know, you got the old rust belt cities, you know, blah, you know, and you know, that's, that's, I feel like that's such an easy narrative to pick up on versus San Diego, which hasn't had a, t- a title in, in, in the longest time, but everyone in their right mind is going to look at that and say, okay, but you live in San Diego. Right. So it's mitigated by the by the fact that you live in one of the in probably the most beautiful place in North America. Um, I don't know. I, I I woke this morning and and this topic was spurred by by a snarky tweet of mine this morning when I logged on Twitter this morning and I see all of uh, so many of the Buffalo sports reporters I follow, uh, the Buffalo sports fans, Buffalo natives I follow. Almost like jumping up and claiming this, you know, we are the longest suffering city now. Now is our turn and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and, and it, it's always kind of – it's always bothered me as a lifelong Bills fan. Uh, it's kind of a come-and-go come Sabres fan regardless of whether you think they're a real pro team or not. Um, <laughs> but it, it, there, there's just always this, this weird se- this sense of fatalism around especially especially the especially the bills like the sabers have sabers completely tanked and they tanked on purpose two years ago and they're trying to to sort of rebuild um but but with the bills there there's this real real kind of ugly fatalism where like literally anything bad happens on the field and you, you see people jumping up well same old bills most cursed team in america Blah 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 blah, and it just it it it, it really uh, bothers me. Is probably too strong a word, but but I get I get I get kind of upset when I see that because I'm like I don't know. I, I always feel like that that kind of talk always turns into this self fulfilling prophecy where like well we can't get too excited about our team because the the other shoe is right. going to drop or you know uh, the Bills go ten and six and miss the playoffs by a game. Well, same old Bills. They stink. They can't make the playoffs. And well, I don't know. It's it, 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 it's it's so interesting, and what what I find really interesting with the Bills is they have not made the playoffs, and obviously they have not made it in 16 years. Probably going to be 17 this year. I don't like their chances, but that's become such this albatross around the franchise and around the city that I always wonder how much it it, it, it th- that narrative 
can actually change a team's decisions. Like I think the Bills, the, one of their fatal mistakes throughout the past like 10 years is they're very thinking short because that this playoff drought is such a thing and it's so repeat, it's repeated so often and it's always a talking point up here that I feel like it becomes this, well, we're so close and, and the Bills have, have, have stunk in the worst way possible mm-hmm. and that they were always like that 10 and 6 to like 6 and 10 record. They had one year where they went 3 and 13 the year and they even blew that because that was the year that if they had finished the worst, they would have gotten Cam Newton. Instead, they get Mar- Marcel Darius, and he's a very good player, and that's no problem. But, um, but yeah, it's the worst kind of sucking, where like you suck in the middle. And so, and not only do you not get the good draft pick, but I think there's that temptation when you're that kind of middle level, like, oh, we're just one blank away from making the playoffs, and it's such a push to make the playoffs that it really, I, I, I feel like. You know, instead of doing like a full blow it up or a full slow a full slow build to kind of get you know build an organization, you know, Cleveland the Browns are actually doing I think something really interesting this year with hiring Paul D. D. Podesto. They have a good coach. Um, you know, I we don't think we think. Um, I mean, he's better than the ones they've had, um, but we think. I just get really annoyed at that fatalism. And look, I'm not the type of fan who thinks, you know, you cheer for your team right and wrong and everything, you know, always look on the bright side of life. But, you know, I, I, I just get ups- I don't know why that cursed talk just kind of bothers me so much. And it does. And I don't know why it, why it rankles so much, but it, it kind of feels like, no, that, 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 that we're not cursed. The, like, the gods don't care that we have a crappy football team. We have a crappy football team because we have a crappy football team. We, and that's, I think, the key. And I guess that may be why I was I, – I found all the talk around Cleveland to be maybe – I mean, I get why these things exist. I get why people think that they exist. It, it happens in other cultures, uh, hmm. other, other sporting cultures as well. It's nothing that's unique to the U.S. But, but I, sure. do think, I do think that it is – is far more arbitrary um, in terms of well, arbitrary is the wrong word. It, it's it's not by any means the result of the city existing and right. there being something tied to the existence of the city or the existence of the region. It, it is one of the things that's fascinating if you look at sports is that uh, of all of the sports that are out there, the NFL is the easiest sport to change your uh, your situation in because mm-hmm. the resources are so equal across mm-hmm. the board. What it needs is the right people in the right positions. And, you know, right. um, you know, the calves to some degree, they, you know, you got to give LeBron James credit because LeBron James was like, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to come back, I'm going to restructure the roster the way that I want. Right. And that's what they've done. And right. he ends up being vindicated, and and as as recently as Game Five or Game Four, everybody's looking around and like, well, LeBron right. asked for this roster. He asked for Kevin Love to be on this team. Yeah, this this doesn't work. This is on him. I, I you know I was telling people I don't have any sympathy for LeBron if he doesn't win the title with this team because he chose it. Well, he chose right, right and so he gets right. credit. The the um, the other side of it though is that when you don't have the right people in positions and they make bad decisions, you can't then turn around and just be like, Oh, same old bills or same old Browns, because there's nothing that's keep that making them stay that way unless they have bad ownership or bad management, which I think every bills fan I've ever talked to tells Mm -hmm. me that that's the problem with the bills is that the ownership isn't good. They don't know what they're doing. They hire people people who don't know what they're doing. And then they hire people who don't know what they're doing. Right. I think the ownership was definitely questionable up until the new ownership is the Pagulas bought the team two years ago. So right. they're, they're, they're still in a kind of grace period and they're still kind of figuring that out. I mean, I think it takes a long time. Yes. It takes a long yeah. time to brush out institutional asshattery. And, you know, uh, and look, we, we had this with the Colts. Like, you know, people people think of the Colts as like a, a perennially successful franchise. And that was never the case. When they moved here, they were run by a lunatic, like a guy who. Well, they're who, still run by a lunatic. Well, no. OK. OK. They're run by they're run by a a a loon right now. They were run by a legitimate lunatic back okay. then. Like, I mean, <laughs> uh, like Bob Ursay might have had like like significant mental problems. Uh, he, okay. he certainly had an alcohol problem and he, he didn't know what he was doing running a team when, when his son eventually takes over. I mean, Jim Ursay, um, you know, he's, 
he's got his own, he's got his issues unquestionably <laughs> but but if there's one thing that Jim Irsay should be applauded for uh over it's his willingness to hire football people who know what they're doing and give them the power to do that and you know everybody right. looks at you know Bill Polian as being the guy that they hired and and Bill Polian certainly now deserves Built the Bills. Built, built the Bills and got chased out by the Bills uh, mm-hmm. in, in a power struggle. Yep. Um, but built that team into a team that contended for Super Bowls for, you know, for four or five years in a row. Um, so, you know, Ursay gets credit for that. When Ursay took over, his first major – Jim Ursay took over. His first major hire was Bill Tobin, who most people have forgotten. But Bill Tobin right. was the guy that built a lot of those – helped build those, those mid-'80s Bears teams mm-hmm. that were so good. And, you know, from the moment that happened – until Polian came in, I mean, that was a significantly different and better Colts franchise than it had been before. And all it took was a change in culture, a change in attitude. Right. And, and you know, what's, what's hilarious to me about the NFL is that it, it is a, it's relatively simple to win, but the egos involved are so immense that right. people don't let themselves – embrace the concept of let me let me cede some power to people who might know what they're doing better than me and let them achieve it's 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 uh so much so much talent and potential gets squandered it's not just the nfl but the nfl is the easiest one to turn things around in like in baseball i mean theo epstein's Mm -hmm. done an awesome job with the cubs it's taken five years right you know i mean it it doesn't take that long in the nfl i mean you know you can you could turn a franchise around and have them in the super bowl within a year or two of being hired as a head coach or a gm you -hmm. can just as easily have a team that was that won the super bowl or was in the super bowl turn around and and be you know a four-win team and out of the playoffs in the same amount of time right yeah, it's and, and and it's amazing how you mentioned egos involved. I mean, you look at the Bills, and we'll wrap this up in a minute. We've had way too much Bills talk for a team that's <laughs> not that good. But like, you look at the egos involved. I mean, the thing that's killing the that that has killed the Bills the last three four years was the decision to draft EJ Manuel first round out of Florida State, I think in twenty thirteen. And part of the reason they traded up, made the big Sammy Watkins deal, and traded away a first round draft pick was like he's the piece. Like we're gonna give. EJ Manuel a weapon. Now EJ Manuel is a terrible. He, he's not an NFL quarterback. I mean that's that's been pretty evident. My five year old figured that out watching a game this past year. Um and, and and but but you see he's still their number two and 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 you see the ego and that that like refusal to it to you know to admit a mistake to say wow you know I miss I miss I, I misfired on that guy. That's not good. And, you know, instead of moving on with, you know, they have a good young, a, a good second year quarterback in Tyrod Taylor, you know, bring in a, a veteran guy, uh, you know, a Colt McCoy type backup guy to have there, you know, in case he gets hurt to kind of manage the game and not lose it. And, you know, that can be the, you know, the, it, it's how funny this like one decision and kind of like the stubbornness and the ego to, to, to stick with it, how much the long range ample, uh, ramifications that can have. For a franchise, but I am fascinated by the idea of kind of like organizational culture and especially sporting team culture, and you know what good teams and organizations do right, and you know, and and how it fall and 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 how it, it, I, I do find it fascinating that you know with very few exceptions it's so fluid. I mean, you always have the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, we can mock their fans, rightfully so, but you know they're they're a pretty well run quality organization tend to be top to bottom the canadians for a lot of years um and and it, it, it's just funny how fluid it can it, it is in sports and how much it's not you don't so, have that that sometimes that's the yeah. thing i guess the, the one thing that is int- impressive to me it's it's fluid for so many franchises except for the ones that it's not and the ones that yeah. the, the, the ones that exist two standard deviations on either side of the mean so yeah like the spurs in the nba who right just get it like they yep. they they get how to run their team they get how to do everything and yeah. you know and and on the flip side like the toronto maple leafs <laughs> you know a, a, a team oh they're a dumpster all, fire all the resources in the world mm-hmm. and and zero ability to actually like put anything together and make it meaningful and worthwhile right. and you know that to me is like that those it's not even a dichotomy because it's more it's a spectrum basically but the, yeah. the fact that there's such a wide spectrum that that you see on a regular basis in sports uh you know and having look having worked for sport for my granted minor league sports but still having worked in sports 
so much of it comes down to just something as simple as ego. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people's egos, people who have power who shouldn't, people who think they know what they're doing but don't, um, and people who are envious of the people who do know what they're doing. Uh, right. You know, it it just it it creates such a fascinating, um, like structural asymmetry in sports because you know everybody in the league generally has the same resources at their disposal in terms right. of like here's what the rules are here's what you can do and now with salary caps and with guaranteed money you know there's 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 not a huge amount of difference between these teams like there used to be back in the 60s and 70s like you know the the packers or the browns or the bills in the AFL you know mm-hmm. i mean these were like they knew what they were doing for a period of time and and you could really build a competitive organizational advantage it's so much harder to do that now mm-hmm. so i it's it's really cool to see teams that have that, but then it's also fascinating to watch teams that don't. And, you right. know, like the Bills, the Raiders, the, you know, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of another team in the NFL that, that's in that same category right now. Um, the Jaguars, maybe, yeah. you know, like teams that just can't get out of their own way. And you're like, why not? And so then yeah. to, to tie it back into what we were talking about, look, the Cavs couldn't get out of their own way for for a couple of decades. And they, they did they had bad draft picks, they they had bad free agent signings, they mm-hmm. you know, they, they made poor business decisions and it gets chalked up to a curse. And it's like, you know, right. it should be chalked up to incompetence and I and I feel to some degree I know media like to engage in these little yarns, these little narratives that they you know, mm-hmm. that, that they know is gonna drive attention. But isn't a better story? This team doesn't know what the hell they're doing. You should demand better. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And and, I mean, look, at the end of the day, talent helps. Like San Antonio is helped by having three Hall of Fame players. You know, Cleveland overcame those players. Right. Right. And and, but still, you know, having Tim Duncan and it helps, you know, Cleveland overcoming its jinx. You know, it does help to have the best player in the world because that block, though, at the end of the game last night. Ooh. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I it was it was what was remarkable about that block. Sorry to steer it away from that, but it was remarkable fine. about that block was I I searched this morning on Twitter because I was curious. I searched for goaltending to see how many people would be complaining that it was goal, and it was not. It was a clear good block. Right. And like there were a couple of you could tell bitter fans who are talking about it. But what was remarkable about that play was even the most diehard Warriors people I know were like, whoa. That was because that was just such a transcendently gifted ac- a- athletic play that, um, yeah, it was just marvelous thing to see. Yeah, no, I mean it was it was an amazing. There were a lot of there were a lot of really um, amazing individual efforts. I think by LeBron James and by his teammates. I mean his teammates yes. really blossomed in that seventh game. Really in the, yeah. in, in games five, six, and seven. Like yeah. they, they really they really put themselves uh, up at a level that I didn't think they were going to be able to attain. And so my hat's off to them. But that's, I guess that's ultimately my point, is that you could have an amazing play by a LeBron James, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if he doesn't have a team built around him. That's true, and, yeah. And it took, it took, and this is where I think he deserves so much credit, it took his willpower of saying, mm-hmm. this is the team we're going to have, this is my, this is the, this is my the, the the price that you will pay for me coming back is that I am going to basically control the personnel decisions, the coaching decisions, all of that. And, right. and that was what overcame the curse. And the curse in this case is the curse of terrible decision-making that the right. franchise had been making over the last couple of decades. So, Agreed, so I, yes. the bills, I guess need a, they need somebody to come in and, and do that. And I don't know who that person is. I don't right. even know if it's possible in the NFL. Like there's I say it's hard. The, yeah. The NFL is like it's like the public company from hell. You know, it's like you know, yeah. I mean, like basketball is small enough. It's like a small group. It's like a startup. You know, I mean, like right. one like a Steve Jobs figure can really make a difference there. Right. It doesn't really work that way in in the NFL. The because, NFL really is like IBM in the fifties or like yes. Kodak in the fifties. Yeah, and in the individual teams, it's really really hard. I mean, hell, we've got a. We've got a guy, you know, the GM of the Colts right now who, you know, he still hasn't had a good draft and, mm-hmm. and he thinks he's having great drafts. And, and, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching this guy and you're like, what in the heck? Like, why, why does this guy have his position? Um, mm-hmm. And it's simply because the owner likes him. Like, that's, and that's like, it's right. not a good, that's not a good reason in any business. 
Um, but in but in sports, rather than lay the blame at the feet of the people who deserve it, there's all this obfuscation and there's all of these attributions to things that have nothing to do with what's actually going on. Right, I agree. So, so on a day when we were going to keep it short, we uh, we've gone probably one of our longer ones. So we are well, we're almost at the hour mark, so we're not we're, perfect. We're, we're, yeah, but anyway, we we do need to wrap up. Any final thoughts? No, I think we've uh, we've we've got it all. Um, again, questions we welcome them at hashtag FlipsidePod. Uh, show notes for the episode will be at sportsmediaguy.com on the Flipside tab. Um, and I think that's all I've got. Yeah, conspiracy theories next week. Conscience. Oh, it's gonna be fun. Next Conscience week. and conspiracy theories. It's gonna be a good week. So much. Anyway, Brian Moritz and Galen Clavio. We'll catch you folks on the flip side. So long, everybody. See ya.